Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher barkarbanu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-torah. Amen. May this podcast be to the Rufu Shlema of Esther, Bat Sarah, and also for the Nahum and for the Shalom upon the Nicholson family. Shalom Aleichem, everyone. Welcome to Parsha Kitisa. Good night. The most epic Torah portion ever, um, besides obviously my birth Torah portion. Just kidding. Okay, but anyway, to be all serious and stuff, I just want to say that the incredible Talmud. I love you, and I hope that you and I get to podcast again very soon, and that, um, you know, when we get to do the Torah portion, um, I really, really like doing it with you, so just to shout you out there, and also, uh, shouts out to my other fellow Avengers, uh, shouts out to Hasis for the Haftarah, so much fun doing that, shouts out to Neryar Roke for the pretty much the agarit get you some is what we're gonna be basically or what we have been doing basically so um just a lot of beautiful things that i'm very thankful for and with all that being said uh this is just kind of me saying that if i were going to do parashaki tisa as a get you some with the help of hashem and with hashem's kindness and graciousness that i would be doing this with the incredible talent but um, so with that being said, I am just going to say that we're just going to go wherever Hashem allows us to go within this confined time. And I have a lot of sources that Bezrat Hashem I will get through. And this is all Parsha Kitisa and other Torah portions will be included. And this is just a no holes barred, uh, hardcore, no DQ wrestling match. Um, taking it back to the old school style. I know it's called WWE now, but used to be called something different. And uh, that's what I'm going to hold down right now. So with the help of Hashem, here we go. So I'm going to start in a very interesting place because for one thing, this week's tour portion literally shows us the full aspect of what it means to have the Brit Hadashah, which means a renewal of covenant. Uh, we fell from the covenant. We broke the covenant in so many different ways. And Hashem was like, not cool, but I'll fix it, you know, and it's the same covenant, but I'm going to renew it so that you can now enter into it. Because since you broke it, you could not enter into the covenant that I was really offering you, which is the one you agreed to, by the way, you know, so many times. We think about the graciousness and the awesomeness of Hashem, especially knowing that he's loving and kind and gracious and like just so personal. And then we get distracted and we go after the proverbial squirrel, which happens to be a serpent. So, um, you know, with that being said, it's like, what does Brit Hadashah really mean? And in English, it does not translate to New Testament. So New Testament, you can go ahead and just say that came from somewhere else. 
because it's true. It's not a Jewish thought at all. There's nothing new under the sun. And we know who the sun is, and that's Moshe. And we also know that's also Yeshua. And we also know that's the Torah. And we also know that's the light of Hashem. And all sorts of stuff. So, with that being said, I just want to start with the foundation of understanding that when we look at the accounts of the Gospels, which we call the Basora, then we look at the historical account of what happened um, post-resurrection of Mashiach and ascension of Mashiach with the early on stages of the exile that we're currently in. So the beginning of the exile that we're in, you can find in the Basora and you can find in the historical account of Acts. So then after that, you have Igerot, which is the technical way to say the letters. Ha-Igerot, it's the letters. And the cool thing about that is we commonly know this as Brit Hadashah and it's easy to colloquially say Brit Hadashah. But if you go back to my podcast on the introduction to the Egedet cities on the Egedet to the Romans, you would see that there are actually many different canons that would and should actually be called the Brit Hadashah if you really want to do the colloquial term for what the canon should be because there's so many different other writings that are available. Uh, Kepha has more writings. Uh, Shaul wasn't the only one that was prolific. And the only reason we think Shaul was very prolific is because the current canon that we have from Matthew through Revelation is, you know, the final stand that was taken by Catholicism to be that canon and to be actually uh, considered to be spirit led as far as these are the scripture now, as far as what we can append to or add as an appendage to the Tanakh. And it's just kind of like, well, when did that actually happen? Well, this is way after 1000 CE. So I'm being very modest on that because, you know, obviously it was 14 to 1600 somewhere in there. Possibly, maybe I didn't really uh, get too much into that because the point that I want to make is that what is our foundation? And when we really look at what are we studying and why are we studying it? And what are we doing with it? Where did it come from? That's what we should really be focused on because, you know, we're getting to a point in time where Mashiach is closer than he was yesterday, even though it's still today in his eyes. And uh, Hashem is going to send him at any time. And if we're people that are stuck in our own theologies and mindsets and mentalities and uh, what do we want to call it? Corporate structures in the religious world, uh, i.e. like institutions of church uh, and things like that. Well, really, basically, that's what I'm kind of looking at, because really, that's the only people who say, you know, these kinds of things. Well, they may be saying more. I get it. But we cannot afford to ever be in a spot where, you know, the the time, the countdown is done and the exile is over. And we're back in Eretz Israel in the rebuilt Yerushalayim with the help of Hashem, that is, because not everybody's getting in. So 
we all, even myself included, need to take that into account. You know, uh, work out our Yeshua with fear and trembling and understand that what are we doing and are we truly in covenant with Hashem and have we truly been born again? Are we truly circumcised? You know, women included, because circumcision, true circumcision is that of the heart. The flesh is just an external uh, mirror of that. And also it, it is a physical sign. It is a actual mitzvah. But the problem is, if you just want to go off of doing a mitzvah without it being on your heart, then you've also put yourself in a very shaky and precarious decision. You've done a mitzvah, yes, and you've sanctified that aspect of the body, yes, but what about the rest of you? So anyway, um, with that being said, it's important for us to know where, we're, where we are, because I'm about to quote from Second Timothy, which is an egedit that Shaul wrote to Timothy. And, um, you know, Timothy was raised in Tanakh. So none of this Matthew through Revelation business was going on in his upbringing. But he was uh, around during the time of Mashiach and things like that. So obviously there would be some uh, some overlap overlap. Don't stay stuck in our in our disposition of church. If you are that person, uh, I realize and I pray that there are a lot of Yehudim listening to this, a lot of Lapidim listening. But if if it's not and if it's somebody else, I just want to put the whole equal playing ground down that don't stay stuck in church and think, oh, I believe in JC, so I'm good and I'm going to heaven. That's not right. You know, it's it's there is merit in that Baruch Hashem. But you're also um, accountable for what you know. And if you know that the Bible teaches you that there is more than just what's called a New Testament and that actually New Testament is not proper, then you have to start dealing with that and start working it out. So my prayer has been the same prayer that Rabbi Griffin, the Rebbe of Lapid, has actually encouraged us to pray, especially since we started uh, back during Hanukkah, is that Hashem would gather in the divine sparks. And every Shabbat, you know, especially for Shakarit, we pray for converts. We pray for proselytes, people who don't know anything about Torah, that they their eyes are open, their hearts are open, that they come into covenant, that they be born again, that they're rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the marvelous light. So that's what this is all about. So this is not to be slamming anybody, but this is to encourage us that come on, get into covenant. It's totally fine to be Torah observant. It's totally fine to be a Jew. And it's totally fine to believe in Mashiach Yeshua as the Mashiach and follow after his ways, attaching yourself to Hashem because you attach yourself to the Zodic and that gives you such beautiful merit and connection to Hashem. That's amazing. So anyway, so just with that realization and to further deepen that realization, I want to say the reason why second Timothy three, eight is so awesome is because when you look at this verse, it says, now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moshe, so do these people or so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. OK, so I.e. Janus and Jambres is synonymous with 
We don't like the law of Moses. We don't like the law of Moses. We don't like his teachings. We don't like the way he smells. We don't like the way he looks. We're taller than him. We're stronger than him. We're cooler than him. So no Moses. Also, they can be called hashtag not team Moses. Okay. I don't know what else I can say about that. And then the next part, if you look at this verse, it says they resist the truth. They resist emet. They resist Torah, basically, point blank, because emet is Torah. Truth. Truth is Torah. Mashiach says, I came to testify to the truth. I came to testify to the Torah. I mean, I am the Torah. So it's like I'm speaking for myself is basically what Yeshua is saying. Then you put that together with the next little phrase, it says men of corrupt minds. Okay, so corrupt minds actually starts back in the garden with the serpent. Okay, he's the one who began that whole craziness, nonsense, because he knows truth and he teaches truth, but he twists it. And that's the thing is we got to make sure that we know truth, but don't twist it. And we got to make sure that we actually do the truth that we know which is why being Shomer mitzvot is so important. Okay, so then you have this idea, because by the way, you know, Hasatan and the whole demonic kingdom, they believe in Hashem and they are fearful of him. That separates them from us because we believe in Hashem and we fear him. The separation point begins to be not only covenant, but what are you doing? How are you living? Who are you attached to? And who do you serve? Who do you align yourself with? Because Mashiach Yeshua says, if you're not with me, you're against me. There is no middle line. There is no, well, you know, Hashem, I believe in you, but I don't want your law. Because if you do that, you're now saying that I'm Janice and Jambres and my God is the serpent or myself, which is kind of synonymous, really, if you think about it. And then not only that, I know that your Torah is actually truth, but I don't want it. And what of it that I like, I will take. And what of it I don't, I will push away because I'm going to corrupt it. I'm going to now talk my way out of not eating kosher. Talk my way out of not celebrating Pesach and call it Shmeister. Because you realize that's what corruption is. Corruption is saying there's a truth that exists but I'm going to be over here now and I'm going to make that truth look like this. Okay. Like, you know that Xmas has nothing to do with Mashiach, but yet you figure out a way to make it be about Mashiach. The cool thing is, is Hashem knew Mashiach was going to be central and is central to our faith. So every letter of Torah was fashioned through him, to him, with him, by him, from him, all of that. So it's just kind of like, unless you're doing things that are Torah, you're not really centered in Messiah. And that's an indictment, I realize. But we're getting to the point where if you don't want to understand the true indictment that exists in the world today, and why we have the problems that we have in the world today, then I don't know what to tell you. Please press stop because it's only going to get worse in a good way. But um, to say all that while I'm at it is that, you know, when you really realize uh, what the indictment is, you know, you, the real reason why we have birth pangs in the world, 
why we have to have Nida and why we have to have uh, death and why we have to have impurity, why we have to have sin, point blank, sickness and creation groaning is because we decided to say no to Torah and also at the same time corrupt it. That's why we have this problem. So if we're just thinking, well, I can believe in God and believe in Yeshua and I can, uh, you know, just be nice to people because of the whole Torah summed up in love. Shaul said that and Yeshua said that. And that's the greatest commandment. It's just kind of like, OK, so if you really want to do what that says, the only way you can truly love is through Torah, because Yeshua says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and everything that belongs to Yeshua belongs to Hashem. So what is he really saying? And if that wasn't clear enough, follow the, the bouncing ball on the bottom of the screen over the lyrics to the song. Yeshua says, I and my father are one, just like the Torah and Hashem are one, just like the Mishkan and the temple is the image of Hashem manifest on the earth, just like the rock is one of the manifestations of Hashem, the waters of Torah the letters of Torah, it's all a manifestation of Hashem, okay? So if you're a person, your hand is attached to you, Bezrat Hashem, and, you know, if you hit someone with your hand, then, you know, you've hit someone. <laughs> you can't just go, oh, my hand hit someone, and it's not a part of me, so, wow, bad hand. It's like, no, that's your hand, okay? Just like Mashiach is the hand of Hashem. He's Hashem's hand. But anyway... Um, why we have problems in the world is because we decided to be Janice and Jumbers. So if we really want to fix the world, if we really want to hurry up Mashiach getting here, we should be Moshe and we should be Yehoshua and we should be Aharon. We should be Yosef. We should be David. We should be Yitzhak. We should be Yaakov. We should be Avraham. Anybody else I left out? Oh, yeah, we should be David. Those are the seven shepherds of Israel corresponding to the seven branches of the menorah, which means if you really want to be the light of the world, that's how you do it. The true light of the world is the Torah. The true light of the world is the menorah. The true light of the world is those who are branches of the menorah. So Bezrat Hashem, we're all encouraged to come in underneath the wings of the Shekinah we're encouraged to convert. We're encouraged to walk in Torah. We're encouraged to be excited. You know, Torah is exciting. I've been thinking all day about doing this podcast. Uh, well, to be honest, I've been thinking 72 hours about doing this podcast ever since I had to say, what do we know? What do we know from the Haftarah podcast? And Hasiz knows my heart on this. Uh, <laughs> man, I just it, Torah is amazing. All these crazy insights and amazingness. And so we just have to be courageous and do it. So final thing I want to say before I finally get going after all these minutes is that Janice and Jambres are first sourced out in Jewish commentary, i.e. oral Torah. So if Janice and Jambres is actually a thing and actually is worthy of being talked about, then that only means whatever's talking about it, whoever wrote about it, has to know about it from where it came from. Uh, a former Sar Shalom 
member formerly or said, former member, he said, if you want to know what Paul said, you better understand what Paul read. And, uh, you know, that guy, dude, you're awesome. I pray that Hashem will continue to grow you and draw you near him and illuminate your eyes in Tori because he knows who he is. And uh, it'd be really awesome if some kind of way he heard this podcast, too. But anyway, shouts out to homeboy. And uh, but anyway, so you have to understand that the letters, the Basora, the historical account of Acts, the revelation that was given to Yochanan and uh, everything else that's in this current canon that we have um, colloquially called the Brit Hadashah is all Torah. It's nothing else. It's not separate from Torah. It's not Christian writing. There are no Christians that wrote the Bible. Okay. The closest one would be actually Ovadia, which is Obadiah, because he was the only one who was formerly a Christian who actually was an author of the Bible. Because he was of the house of Asaph, and Asaph represents Rome, and Rome is where Christianity came from. And so Obadiah actually separated himself from the house of Asaph and came into the household of Yaakov. So he became a Jew, and not even that, he became, or more than that. So moreover, I, I get to use that word now, Brukshim. So moreover, Ovadia became a Navi. And if you're going to become a Navi, which is the word for prophet, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes with being a prophet, namely denying yourself, namely being filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, namely being inspired by Mashiach Yeshua. Because you realize prophecy is just expounding upon Mashiach Yeshua. That's why we have the words of the prophet Sanhedrin. Maseket Sanhedrin brings that out around 99 and 100 as far as the daf. So if you start in Sanhedrin 99a, just get you some all the way through 100, daf A and daf B. Okay, the two pages of that. You can see about the words of the prophets that they only prophesied to uh, teach us about Mashiach. There's that. But anyway, now that we know that we're studying Torah, whether we're in the front part of the Bible or the back, and there was no change, there was no difference, uh, and the only change really, as far as if you want to call it that, I don't know, just renewal is the basic, the best, the best way to say it. Uh, just start with Parsha Kitisa. If you really want to know what renewal is, look at Parsha Kitisa chapter 34, man, this Torah portion is just insane. Like, okay. So anyway, Torah in the front and back of the Bible, we can call it all Torah. Uh, if we needed another source for that, some aspects of rabbinic theology which is a real book it's an old book and i love it uh shouts out to rabbi griffin for first introducing me to that they basically expound on what is torah torah is not just law torah is not just mitzvot torah is anything that really instructs us in in the, in the words of god the word of hashem and so uh you can technically call the letters it's torah commentary basically it's like the lapid Talmud, basically. Anyway, now that we're there, okay, so Janus and Jumbers. So where I'm going to start from is actually the golden calf uh, from this week's Torah portion. And the golden calf is... Boom, boom. I got like different things open here. So one moment. 
All right, so the golden calf is basically in um, chapter 31, and it actually comes way after the beginning of our tour portion because, you know, you got the whole laying down of the, the half shekel, the shiny laver, the anointing oils uh, for the vestments and for the people who work with the vestments. And then you have Bezalel, and then you have the keeping of the Shabbat. And it's just like, boom, boom, boom. And then it's like, Aliyah 2, Shemot 3118. When he had speaking, when it, wow, speaking, which is finished and speaking, put together. <laughs> so when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moshe the two tablets of the testimony, stone tablets, written with the finger of God. And uh, Luchot Evin is stone tablets. So literally the two Mashiachs, because remember Lukot is actually the, the two tablets. And then the Evan is Mashiach, the foundation stone. And that there are actually two of them, which are one, just like the tablets. That's why Lukot is spelled without the Vav to teach that these two tablets are actually called like one tablet, which is just Luach. But they're Lukot. Luach is tablet. Lukot is tablets. But the way it's pronounced here as or is, is shown here is actually mentioning that it's just one tablet, even though it's two. So then you got Be'etzva uh, Elohim, the finger of Hashem. Now, I did not intend to read or go into that word, but I'm going to now. Uh, I want to look that up for a second. So when I go over here to 31... 3118, and I pull up the interlinear. Just really uh, interested in this word for the finger of God because you remember the plagues back in Mitzrayim, that, that was also called the finger of God. So it's just kind of like, so Hashem wrote with plagues on the tablets, and it's just kind of like, that don't sound right. And it's just like, well, um, so what is the deal about the plagues? Because remember, we talked about the plagues is actually the word makot, which can also mean lashes. And so the finger of Hashem is the author of the lashes and it's the author of the um, the writings on the tablets, the writings of the plagues. OK, or the plagues themselves. Slika. So it says that this can be the finger or the toe. It's from the word seba, which means grasping, something to seize, i.e. a finger, by analogy a toe. First use of this word is actually in Shemot 8, 19, all the way back to Parashavaira. Yes, here we go. This is the finger of God, said the magicians. Okay. And then uh, the next time we see this word, is Shemot 29.12, and it says, Of the altar with your finger you shall pour. So you're anointing the horns of the altar with this finger. And then you have our verse, Shemot 31.18. I'm just reading occurrences right now. From the Strong's Word, uh, it is Strong's Word, 676, okay, 676. Okay, then the next time we see this, Vayikra 4.6, he shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle. Okay, so this instrument of uh, action is what's going on. 
And uh, yeah, so this is used of God as writing, like an act of God. So anyway, Golden Calf, Janice and Jumbers, where they at? Let's talk about it. First thing, I want to give a little introduction from Pearl K., uh, page 82, this chapter 45, Pier K de Rebbe Eliezer, basically. Rabbi Shimeon ben Yokai says, When HaKadosh Baruch Hu appeared to Moshe in the thorn bush to send him to Mitzrayim, Moshe said, Master of all worlds, swear to me that you will approve of whatever I do or say. If you do not, I am afraid I may say something to Paro, which will not be fulfilled, and he will kill me. So if you want to understand the golden calf, you got to go back to the burning bush. That, that's just what we do now, I guess. God swore he would grant Moshe's very ever or Sika. God swore he would grant Moshe's every wish with two exceptions. You know, because God knows what we need before we ask. You can also translate that. He knows what we want as well. He would not grant his wish to enter Eretz Israel. Oh, wow. Hashem knew the end before the beginning. <laughs> How about that? And then it says he would not grant his wish to live forever. Moshe wanted to live forever. Why is that connected with him entering into the land? Because when you read the Hasidic commentary, especially the Kehot Humash, the Kehot Humash, especially in Parashah Devarim and all that, you realize that if Moshe would have entered into the land of Israel, he would have never died. The clouds of glory would have never went away. The manna would have kept falling. The temple would have been built. And the messianic era would have started. So, yeah, all that. Uh, so, anyway, um, so there, that goes hand in hand there. And it says, how do we know God swore to him? How do we know? I love how that's like a thing. So this is from Radal. It says, I swear by myself, righteousness has gone forth from my mouth, a word that will not be rescinded. Yeshiyahu 45, 23. 40 days after the giving of the Torah, the people forgot their God, saying to Aharon, the Egyptians carried their God before them, singing and chanting to it during their processions. Make us a God like the Egyptians so we can see it in front of our eyes. Now, first of all, I didn't intend to say this either. Notice how they says, see it in front of our eyes. Is this why Hashem gave us the mitzvah of tefillin to be bain and nechem, to be between our eyes or i.e. before our eyes? And then notice at the back of the tefillin is the dalit, which is actually where our optical nerves begin. We actually see from the back of our head. So really the closest part of our vision is actually connected to the only part of Hashem that we were allowed to see, which is the back of his head, which is where Chazal say that this was the knot of Hashem's tefillin. And so that same knot in the back of our head tefillin is representative of that and that's the beginning of our optical nerve and that place where that knot is makes the letter dalit which is the door which is the mashiach the two mashiachs because you know a door can open both ways or this door open both ways you can go in you can go out so it works it two ways you can exit or you can enter which one do you want to do and uh it's the same door but anyway so we can see there. And so 
Hashem is between our eyes. He's before us. I set Hashem before me, I believe, Melek David uttered. You know what? I wonder what he says on that. So uh, let me go swerve over there real quick. Uh, I said Hashem before me. Tehillim 16.8. All right, Big Green, what we got? Tehillim 16.8. What's funny is I want to say I'm winging it, which is a Shomer thing to say since we're flying. Uh, anyway, uh, yes, I'm winging it in the means of these are things that I did not intend to share, but... Anything that I get to share, I'm happy to because it's not me, it's Hashem. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to be a vessel. So, the fact that I'm getting to say anything, basically, I'm, I'm happy. So, uh, it says, I place God always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not falter. So, Radak says, I am always cognizant of him just as I am aware of what is in my immediate presence. Okay, that's pretty aware. It says, Mezudo, I visualize him standing before me, observing my actions. Ooh. All right, here we go, Rashi. Throughout his life, David always kept a Torah scroll with him to read. Hence, another interpretation of the verse, because I am immersed in the Torah, which was given with God's right hand, I shall not falter. Get you some. Anybody got anything else on that? Oh, yeah, of course. There's much more to that. The king must have a Torah scroll with him at all times. I'm dropping Talmud Sanhedrin 22a. So again, if Mashiach is king, Torah is a thing. Uh, oh, we're doing a little rap now. All right. So the king must have a Torah scroll with him at all times, or he must be the Torah scroll at all times. He writes it like an amulet, i.e. a in small script, and hangs it from his arm. Notice it's saying amulet, not saying that it is an amulet, but it's an amulet is the way to say that this is going to be like a lanyard hanging around him. And it's going to hang from his arm. So... Again, Mashiach is the right hand of Hashem, and Mashiach is the Torah. So he is the he is Hashem's amulet. He hangs from the arm of Hashem. So that means when he was actually crucified on the stake, he was also hanging on the arm of Hashem. And when we put up a mezuzah, we're hanging him on the arm of Hashem. Because, you know, the door, the dalit, the place where the blood is applied to the doorposts to signify to us and to Hashem, hey, we're in covenant. We love you. Like, for real, love you. Like, we do things about it. But anyway, um, it says that through studying Torah, we place God before us, as the Talmud states, Tami 32b, one who is occupied with Torah study, it is as if the divine presence stands before him. That is Hida. Okay, that's the commenter on that. There's a little footnote down here. I just want to read it. Rambam Hilkot Melakim, the laws of the kings, 3.1, omits the requirement to hang the Torah on the king's arm since, as Radvaz explains, it seems unlikely that a valid Torah scroll could be written on scroll on a scroll so small. According to Teshuvot 
Ha-Jeonim, the king hung it from his arm, hung from his arm, only the Ten Commandments. While according to Mary, the Talmud is referring to the complete Torah. Isn't it interesting that what hangs from the arm of the king is either called the Ten Commandments or the complete Torah, which is pretty much what the Lukotes are, which is what got us into this conversation about the finger of God inscribed on the Torah. So anyway, I uh, lost my place. Oh, no, I didn't. Thank you, Hashem. Uh, and it says, so back to Pirokei. 40 days after the giving of the Torah, the people forgot their God. So it's interesting. It's hard to forget God if he's before you. So they stopped studying Torah in order to make a golden calf. And that's typically what happens with us. Unless we stay focused on Hashem, we make a golden calf. So Bezrat Hashem, um, you know, we chop it up and, and make shuva and, uh, and turn back to Hashem. Like what happened in this week's Torah portion. Because you realize the 3,000 people that died are the epitome of those who were confronted with their sin and did not make shuva. So 3,000 did not die when the Torah came. 3,000 only died because they never got a chance to do Torah because they were against it before it even got there. And when they were told that, hey, you violated the covenant, the tablets got broken, so we never got to receive what we said we were going to. And... Uh, what say you? And they go, ah, whatever. Look at this calf. By the way, can I have some of your manna? Because I want to feed it to the calf. Because by the way, Legends of the Jews does bring down that they fed manna to the golden calf because it rained down manna that night. So they had this big feast, which included manna going into the evening of really the 39th day, not the 40th day. They Their timing was off. Which, by the way, this is why we are not encouraged to be counting down the return of Mashiach. Every single time we've counted in the Torah, we've always been wrong. Every single time we've counted down to something. Notice we count the Omer up. <laughs> when we count up, though, that's when we on point like a ball pen. So don't be counting down and being like, Mashiach is going to return on this day. Moshe is going to return on this day. Or as what happened in Mitzrayim, it's time for us to leave now. We're done being in Egypt. It's like, it's great that you want to be done being in exile, but wait for Hashem. Today, if you'll hear his voice, that'll be the day. And if he, uh, if he delays, then guess what? It'll still be today when he shows up. Because there is no time with Hashem. <laughs> he operates outside of time. He operates outside of space. So what you going to do with that? Which should be an encouragement, by the way, that our physical limitations as human beings, especially in the timeline and in space, uh, should be encouraging that we are attached to something that is outside of all this. So we need to be people of Amuna that is not by sight, but that is by Amuna. We realize we have these things and limitations and, and, and things in this world, but we also realize that we're attached to what transcends it. And so we need to operate by that law as opposed to all these other laws. Okay, that doesn't mean go outside and jump off of a cliff, because if you operate by the law that Hashem is outside of time and space, he tells you, use your common sense. And when I want to do things for you, I will. Just like I did and just like I'm doing. The fact that you're even breathing is a thing. All that to say, um, the reason why we have the golden calves is because we stopped putting Hashem before us. 
and we started counting okay moshe should have been here like three hours ago and uh while i'm at it uh rabbi trugman does a beautiful explanation on this because parashaki tisa is normally read in close proximity to chag purim the festival of purim and notice we're in uh the first month of adar so it's not purim but if purim was in this month of adar because we got a leap year going on right now then it would have been this week Purim is in another month. So, Baruch Hashem, uh, we get to go into the the true Adar, month of Adar. Cause, okay, that's another Josh for another time. This is literally the extra month. The extra month of Adar is actually this month, and the normal month of Adar is next month. That's why Purim is next month. I don't have time to go into it, but if you really want to get into that, look up Rabbi Alon Anava talking about uh the month of adar does a whole zohar series on the months so yeah so you can check that out and get more information but anyway so uh the where i was going with this is that the golden calf is the story of purim from esther chapter one all the frivolity that was going on all of the desecration of the name of hashem and the vestments of hashem that is the golden calf um, you know, at the party of Purim in Esther chapter one, the king had the priestly, uh, garments, you know, paraded around on a nun Cohen at a party of, uh, licentiousness and debauchery and drunkenness and orgies. It was pretty much like a mix of Xmas and Valentine's day with a little bit of, uh, Shalloween. Really mixing all those up together is kind of awkward. But anyway, that's what was going on. And the Jews were there and being like, yeah, this is great. Not to mention the overall theme of the party. The reason why the party happened was because King Akashverosh was like, that's it. That's the end of the Babylonian exile. Your 70 years are up and Hashem didn't save you. So you're mine. And they were like, woohoo, let's party. And it's just like, Wow really that's what we're gonna do and for this and the golden calf it's like moshe didn't come back moshe is dead we need a new god and we need to have a party let's do it and so the 17th of tammuz actually should have been the beginning of three weeks of get you some oh you mean like rosh hashanah to sukkot and shimini Zeret? yeah that should have been the 17th of tammuz to the 9th of av but instead, because we thought we were awesome and miscalculated, we turned it into the three weeks of mourning. And that's when we said, no, we don't want to go into the promised land. We'll stay in the wilderness. That's when we said, ah, Hashem, what's a few idols in the temple? That's totally fine. And two temples destroyed later. Here we are. So that's all what the golden calf is in this week's tour portion. I still haven't talked about Janice and John Rochette and to not belay the time. Let's go ahead and do that. Um, got Legends of the Jews queued up over here. Now, I will tell you, I am reading from uh, an ebook. Uh, this is literally, instead of um, like the Safaria, which is where the first place I found Legends of the Jews, shouts out to the Mighty Haver. Um, and it has like all the chapters delineated in sections and stuff. But if you buy the book here, it gives you. Um, titles so you can just be like golden calf uh the Re revelation of the torah the building of the temple the census 
uh, and all that kind of stuff, which would be Katisa. So you can literally follow the tour portions by knowing what's actually happening situational wise, which is really cool. And then as I'm reading it, I'm seeing that there are bracketed numbers like for footnotes, which would give references. But I have not found out how to find these references yet. From what I can tell, there's a lot of Midrash Tankuma. There's a lot of Midrash Says. There's a lot of Makilta. There's a lot of Shemot Rabbah and other type of Rabbahs and even some Talmudic drops. So uh, Legends of the Jews is a big conglomeration of sources and um, some of them we've never heard of and just a lot of things in here were just kind of like, wow, like I can't believe that's in there. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. So it's not for the faint of heart, I realize. But just know that there's a lot of cool stuff that is actually here and uh, legends. So anyway, I'm reading from the Golden Calf, uh, which is said to be page 1371, according to this ebook. But anyway, I digress. It says that, uh, let me just start from the beginning here. When God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, all Israel sang a song of jubilation to Adonai for their faith. And God was on this occasion without bounds and unexampled, except possibly at the time of Mashiach, when they likewise will cherish this firm faith. So in other words, if Mashiach could have been there, this would have been it. This is the height of what our faith is. But since Mashiach was not there, this is a close second. This is a very, very close second to how awesome it is when Mashiach returns. Okay, so that's the level that they're on right now. It says the angels too rejoice with Israel. Only God was downcast on this day and sent his voice out of thick darkness and a token of his sorrow. And it's just kind of like because Hashem knows what's going to happen. It says, the angels hereupon said to God, is it not the joy that you have created or is not the joy that you have created yours? But God replied, you do not know what the future will bring. He knew that 40 days later, Israel would give the lie to the words of God. You shall have no other gods before me. And they would adore the golden calf. In other words, Hashem was like, they're going to turn my truth into a lie. They're going to corrupt my word. They're going to become Janus and Jambres and led by Janus and Jambres. And they're going to make a golden calf. So therefore, this day of Shavuot is a day of clouds and thick darkness for me. In the future, it won't be. It's going to be Mashiach ascending into Hashemayim and raining down the Ruach HaKodesh with tongues of fire. Because, you know, that's what Acts chapter 2 is. Acts chapter 2 is the original intent of Shavuot minus the... Mashiach there-ness, uh, whatever, whatever that means, because the Mashiach there-ness. But anyway, um, it says, And truly God had sufficient cause to grow sad at this thought. For the worship of the golden calf had more disastrous consequences for Yisrael than any other of their sins. Oh, so you mean we got some original sin going on? Oh, let this be known. Parsha Kitisa 5779. Legends of the Jews is about to tell us the original sin, okay? Or teach us about original sin. Here we go. It said, God had resolved to give life everlasting to the nation that would accept Torah. Hence, Yisrael, upon accepting the Torah, gained supremacy over the angel of death. But they lost this power 
when they worshiped the golden calf. As a punishment for this, their sin, they were doomed to study the Torah in suffering and bondage and exile and unrest amid the cares of life and burdens until the messianic time. And in the future world, God will compensate them for all their sufferings. But until that time, there is no sorrow that falls to Israel's lot that is not in part a punishment for their worship of the golden calf. I repeat that uh, until that time, until the messianic time, there is no sorrow, i.e. any tragic that's, any tragic things that are going to occur have of the results of worshiping the golden calf. Because it says, there is no sorrow that falls to Israel's lot that is not in part a punishment for their worship of the golden calf. Now, the other original sins, uh, since I don't see it in front of me here, is going to be the sale of Yosef and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eitz Hadas. Now, um, so going on next page, it says Moshe departed from the people to hasten to God to receive the Torah. He said to them, 40 days from today, I will bring you the Torah. But at noon on the 40th day, Hasatan came and with a wizard's trick conjured up for the people a vision of Moshe lying stretched out dead on a beer that floated midway between Hashemayim and earth. So, you know, this truly is a picture of Mashiach Yeshua on the crucifixion stake dead, like the spirit departed from him and he's just hanging there. And the crazy thing is, is all the sheep were scattered the only people that were still there was his, his mother and uh, another uh, lady whose name is Miriam and a few of his uh, followers. And they were able to actually take his body and tend to it um, pr uh, temporarily so that it would be OK for the Shabbat so they can come back out to Shabbat and finish. But you realize that Moshe stretched out dead on the beer that floated midway between heaven and earth. You know, and the people are pointing to it and said, this man, Moses, that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Or like, this is the man, you know. And so uh, looking at that, it's just kind of like, oh, this this I thought this was the Messiah. You know, all hope is lost. He's dead now. And he's like, I said this was going to happen. And then there's a Roman soldier who pierces his side and realizes, oh, my gosh, this is truly the son of God. And notice it was after the, the blood and the water left the side of Mashiach, i.e. he was sprinkled with the blood of the anointed one. And that's how he knew. Because, you know, we're sprinkled with the blood of Mashiach Yeshua to purify us from our evil consciences and to actually draw us in more yearning for Hashem. So we're able to see. OK, so the uh, the sprinkling of the blood is more like boosting the reception, you know, kind of thing. So. If it penetrated the heart of a Roman soldier, how much more should it penetrate the heart of a Lapid? Anyway, so back to the story here, because finally it says under the leadership of the magicians, Janus and Jambres, which, by the way, Midrash Tankuma on this week Torah portion brings that out as well. So they're also in Midrash Tankuma for Parsha Kitiza. Under the leadership of the magicians, Janus and Jambres, they appeared before Aharon saying the Egyptians were wont to carry up their gods. And then it says, because um, remember, Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer said that, uh, that the people of Egypt were wont to carry their gods about with them to dance and play before them. 
that each might be able to behold his gods. Now we desire that you should make us a god such as the Egyptians had. That is exactly Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer. So what happened after this? Hur, the son of Miriam. Hur ben Miriam. Hur is spelled Chet Vav Resh. If you reverse that spelling, it is Ruach. So Miriam's son is the Ruach. Okay, and then Miriam's son is also called Moshe because according to some interpretations, the reason Moshe exists is because of Miriam, which means the first redeemer is existing because of Miriam and the first redeemer um, is mothered by one who is called Miriam. And Miriam actually has a son of her own from the tribe of Yehuda because Miriam and Caleb were uh, husband and wife. And they gave birth to Hur, so who gave birth to Uri, which is my light, by the way. Uri is Ori, my light. And then he gave birth to Betzalel, who built the temple or the Mishkan. So all that to say, Miriam being the mother of Mashiach Yeshua is not a surprise. It's not anything that's like, oh, Yeshua HaMashiach's mother's name is Miriam. Oh, how wonderful. Did not see that coming. And then, um, so just looking at Ruach, which is Hur backwards, and then Uri, the light. So you got Ruach, you got light, and you got in the shadow of Hashem. And that is the lineage of the children <laughs> and uh, from Miriam. And then it's just like, yeah, and they're supposed to be the Redeemer and build a temple and, you know, stand up for Israel and stuff. Because it says in the legends over here, that Hur, the son of Miriam, whom Moshe, during his absence, had appointed joint leader of the people with Aharon. So now the leader of the people is a king and a priest. Okay? Because Hur and Aharon. This could be basically Yeshua and Yochanan. But anyway, uh, they were in charge. And it says, owing to his birthright, which placed him among the notables of highest rank, beheld this insanity okay beheld this he said oh you frivolous ones you are no longer mindful of the many miracles god wrought before you in their wrath the people said crucify no that's not in here sorry i thought it said that but it says in their wrath the people slew this pious and noble man and pointing out his dead body to aharon they said to him threateningly if you will make us a God, it is well. If not, we will dispose of you as of him. Okay, so it's the end of that, all right? So there's a lot more in there, but I just wanted to bring up Janice and Jambres and the golden calf. And bada bing, bada boom. So Bezalel, right? What's the deal with Bezalel? Let's talk about homeboy. Okay, so I'm going to hop over to G Shekel. For this one. All right. So shouts out to G Shekel over in India. Okay. So <clears throat> he brings down about Bezalel that <clears throat> first you need to understand what's written about the Messiah. There's a little known passage in Yeshayahu that we're going to say in just a minute, but let me just start with his comments here. He says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. So Bezalel is filled with the Spirit of God with wisdom and with understanding and with knowledge okay the spirit of elohim so uh for us to get that 
Uh, let's go here. Shemote, chapter 30. Cinnamon, spices, shulkan. Bada bada ba boom. Spices, stactate, anika, galbanum. It's all katort. Okay, now, Shemote 31. I've called by name Bezalel ben Uri ben Hur of the tribe of Yehuda. Okay, so, in the shadow of Hashem, son of my light, son of basically the Ruach. Okay, so just for grins, let me look at what is uh, Hur. Like, what literally does that mean? Uh, Exodus 31. Doing a little interlinear here. Stand by. Hur. 2354 is the Strong's number. Sometimes you got a little technology. <laughs> okay, Hur, it says, is from the word Chavar. Really? Okay, so it says the same as Hur. Uh, let's go ahead and look at that. Uh, it says white stuff, like uh, cotton or linen. The garments of Mordecai in a royal garment of violet and white, or violet and white, of the furnishings of the royal palace of Shushan. So it's quoting Esther 8.15 and Esther 1.6. Literally, Esther 1.6, there were hangings of fine white and violet. Esther 8.15, uh, royal blue and white crown of gold. Okay, so there's that. So let's look at the root word, chavar, which means to be or grow white or pale. All right, and it says to blanch as with shame, to wax pale, as in... Uh, Yeshiyahu 29.22. And what do we have here? Yeshiyahu 29.22 is... Let's read that verse. Therefore, thus says Adonai, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Yaakov, Yaakov shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face turn pale. So, uh, literally, it says... Who, um, so the, the house of Yaakov shall not be Yevosh, shall not be shamed, which by the way, shouts out to the Egeret to the Romans podcast this week. We talked about Bush or Vosh, which is, I'm not ashamed as in Romans 1 I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then it says, nor shall it, his face be Yech, Yecherah, Yeche, oh, Yechevaru, Yechevaru, which is, it shall not grow pale. So, the white garment, who is my light, who is in the shadow of Hashem, is what we're looking at. When you put this phrase together from Shemot 31, so enter in the Arch Scroll Sidur, for the Talit. So literally this is what we say about the Talit. The sons of man take refuge in the shadow. Bedzel. <laughs> of your wings. And then it says. May they be sated from the abundance of your house. Beteka. Okay. Which is like the bait. The house. The temple. And then it says. May you give them to drink from the stream of your delights. Okay, 
And then it says, for with you is the source of life and by your ore, we shall see light. Extend your kindness to those who know you and your charity to the upright of heart. And remember, the Talit is white. <laughs> so you have the lineage of Bezalel and the Talit. And he's going to build a temple. Okay. And, or Sleekai, Bezalel is going to build a temple. But Hur, his lineage here, is all about the one who was sacrificed and if you really look at, you know, further commentary here, it says that, you know, the atonement for the murder of Hur was met by Bezalel, who built the Mishkan. So, I mean, it's just kind of this cool thing about, you know, the the one who was sacrificed for us and also made atonement for us. And if you really, okay, because uh, when we studied back in Parsha, uh, Toldot and Parsha Vayeshev and Parsha Vayaki, like all that, there was a commentary bringing up that the the grandson can be likened to the son. So like if a, if a person has a grandson, he can also be called his son, in other words, which is, again, the lineage of Yeshua, the last three branches there is Yaakov, Yosef, then Yeshua. So literally, Yeshua can either be called Yeshua ben Yosef or Yeshua ben Yaakov. So what am I getting at? Bezalel can be called Bezalel ben Hur. You know, like the and then remember the, the father and the son are one, right? The son is the extension of the father. So the one who died but was resurrected and made atonement is what we're looking at. So, yeah, there's that. But anyway. So I digress. Let me get back on track now for the lightning round. So we just brought that up with Bezalel. That's all in 31. Oh, let me go ahead and say the, the famous verse. Verse three. I have filled him with the Ruach Elohim, just like in Acts 2, 4. Really? Just like in Acts 2, 4. What does Acts 2, 4 say? Are we going to bring that up? No? Okay. Guess not. Okay. So fake out. But anyway, in Acts 2, 4, there was a, a field with the Ruach Elohim. That's what that looks like. And it says, in Chokmah, which is in w wisdom, in Tevunah, understanding, and in Da'at, and in all workmanship. Okay? So he's filled with all that stuff, which is the same thing about Mashiach. The spirit of Elohim shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom, understanding, spirit of counsel, and might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of fear of Hashem. Yeshiyahu 11.2. As it is written, the spirit of Elohim. So check that out. So then it says, Messiah has double the measure that was granted to Bezalel. Wisdom is accompanied with counsel. Understanding is accompanied with might. Knowledge is accompanied with fear of Hashem. Therefore, the three attributes of Bezalel will be given to the king of Mashiach in a double measure. Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, chapter 3. But, since the attributes of Bezalel are given in a double portion of Mashiach, how do we know that the temple is built by the power of Messiah? By example, for the king Cyrus, who permitted Ezra and Nehemiah. Cyrus is the offspring of Esther and Ahasuerus. Okay, so King Ahasuerus from the, from the Purim story. So the second temple is birthed out of the Purim story. 
Okay, so uh, so Cyrus is the one who permits Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the temple, and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah they're called Messiah, as it says Hashem, or as it, in the verse says Hashem to his Messiah to Cyrus Yeshayahu forty five one. He Cyrus, God's Messiah and Shepherd, will say of Yerushalayim. Let it be built, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Yeshayahu 44, 28. These things are the mission of Mashiach ben Yosef, the soul of the Messiah. These people, Cyrus, Ezra, and Nehemiah, are embodiments of Mashiach ben Yosef. Just as Yehoshua, son of Nun, son of Ephraim, embodies the Messiah ben Yosef, and he made the nation enter the Holy Land, Devarim 31.23, Ezra and Nehemiah also resemble this aspect of Mashiach ben Yosef. In fact, in the Jewish Bible, these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, are considered one. It's no coincidence that the gematria of these names together equal Yehoshua. Yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah together equal Yehoshua. So you can cross-reference Kol Hatur 2.70 and Kol Hatur 2.116. It says... Their main mission was to gather the exiles and build a temple. Ezra 5.15 Therefore, in the aspect of Bezalel who builds the sanctuary, Mashiach ben Yosef, the soul of Messiah, is the force by which the sanctuary is established. Well, there you go. So that's Bezalel. And I could go more and more onto that, but I'm running out of time. So here we go. Um, Bezalel is shadow of the almighty. He is the epitome of Tehillim 91.3. And it says, <clears throat> Slika, no, Tehillim 91.1. To the pious person who dwells in the hidden place of the Most High, who abides in the shade of the omnipresence. Literally, Bezalel should die. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that's just, uh, uncalled for here. Okay, but anyway. It says, containing the uncontainable, the Midrash from the Big Green Book. When God commanded Moshe to make a sanctuary in which he would dwell, Moshe wondered how a transcendent God could dwell in a finite man-made space. God then told him, I am not asking the people to do something in accordance with my power. I only ask them to do in accordance with their own. By the way, that's in the Legends of the Jews. That's exact phrase. So where's this coming from? Bami Bar Rabbah 12.3. Now, while I'm on that, in Legends of the Jews, it talks about, you know, because the, the half shekel is to is to make atonement. It's the atonement money. It is the, the high cost, the wages of the the sin uh, is uh, the, the half shekel. So it says that the people were wondering how to pay for the, uh, the golden calf incident. And Hashem's like, yeah, you're calculating what is the cost of idolatry, the calculating the cost of stealing, the calculating the cost of murder and all that. Y'all are doing a whole bunch of calculating, but all I require is to have shekel because you can't ever pay me what you owe me, but you can pay me what you're able to do. And that's why it's a half shekel because everybody's able to do a half shekel regardless of being rich or poor. So that's all in Legends of the Jews this week. Anyway, Back to the green book, back to Bamibar Rabbah 12.3. 
It says, the entire world cannot contain my glory, nor even one of my servants. Cannot contain my glory, nor one of my servants. Wow. But all I ask of you is 20 beams in the north, 20 beams in the south, and eight in the west. In the present verse, Moshe records the above paradox. He, God, dwells in concealment, transcendent, seeing all yet unseen. Yet he desired to abide in our limited shade and our man-made temple in the shade built by Bezalel. Bami Bar Rabbah 12.3 Footnote. The word remains, which is Yetalonan, Yetalonan, okay? Which is interesting because the word noon is in here at the ending of it. Be interesting to have Superman here to elucidate on this ending because that is an Aramaic ending. But anyway, it says that uh, this word is seen as a contraction of nota or noto lalun, which is he desired to remain. That's from the eighth Yosef. For the word in the shade, bedzel, um, the word for in the shade is bedzel. The word for omni, omnipotent is shaddai indicates limitation as in the word die which means enough together the two words can be interpreted as in the limited shade which is the yahel or in citing yede moshe to shemot rabbah 34 1 alternatively the verse is read he god dwells in concealment transcendent seeing all yet unseen yet the omnipotent desire to remain in our shade in our man-made temple. Furthermore, Bezel is the beginning of the name Bezalel, the person chosen by God to build the tabernacle. So when we look at in the shadow of your wings, we shelter us with the talit. That's the beginning of Bezel or Bezalel, which is uh, an allusion to Mashiach Yeshua. So literally when we're clothed in Mashiach Yeshua, we're clothed in a tallit. And when we are to put on the garments of Hashem, we're putting on a tallit and we're being clothed in Messiah. Uh, yeah, so there's that. Uh, just trying to get as much as I possibly can before I am done here. Uh, I think that's all we're going to do for that. Okay. That's a wrap on Tehillim. Rebbe Nachman, why not? So this is my favorite new weapon, and you're about to find out why. Uh, shout out to Benny B for hooking me up with this. Uh, speaking of a man cannot see me and live, uh, Shemot 3320 says, A person who attains a truly exalted knowledge of God does not really live in a corporeal world. Lakute Maharon 2, uh, chapter 7 and section 8. So if you think about Mashiach, who uh, has been with the Father, he does not live in a corporeal world. So he's beyond this place. Says that uh, I will place you in a crevice of a rock. Uh, there's so much to say on that, but just know that that's the same place Eliyahu was. That is the piercing of Mashiach. So that's where Thomas stuck his hand when he said, I won't believe in the resurrected Yeshua until I touch his piercings and stick my hand in his side. So there's all that. Anyway, plenty of sources on it. It says a person requires limits on his search for godliness. 
so he will not go beyond his capabilities. Although Moshe attained the highest perception of God that a man can reach in this world, he too required limits regarding that perception. So no matter what we try to do, our perception will be limited. We're not going to figure it all out and we need to be okay with that. And then it says, thus God placed him in a crevice. So it's enough for us to be in the pierced place. It's enough for us to be like our master and not to be beyond him. For the same reason, God placed his hand over Moshe. Otherwise, God's awesome light would have overwhelmed him. It's also in Likute Maharon 2. Uh, and this is in 82. Um, oh, man. Here we go. There is a place with me. Uh, Shemot 3320. Okay, so... Still there, or 3321, Slika. God said, behold, there is a place with me. You can stand on the rock. Okay, so standing in Mashiach, standing on Mashiach, being clothed in Mashiach, all of that. God used his this self-description when he wrapped himself in a tallit to teach Moshe the 13 attributes of compassion. Fulfilling the mitzvah of zitzit helps elevate a person beyond time and space. Lakute Halakot, 1, page 82. Uh, keep going here. If your presence does not go, oh, you got to hear this. Okay, so the whole reason why uh, Yeshua is like a thing that he has to be with us in our fallen state because if we stayed in our current state and had Yeshua with us we or had Hashem with us, and Hashem did not contract himself into Mashiach, then uh, we would be in trouble. So check this out. It says, I tabbed it. Sort of anger. If you do not forgive their sin, erase me. Oh my goodness. Okay, my angel. Here we go. Uh, 3234. My angel will go before you. If your presence does not go along, do not take us from here. My angel refers to Memtet. This angel represents the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But I thought Memtet represented the tree of life, right? <clears throat> this is why I've always had the thought that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life were actually like one. But uh, one was kind of lower level than the other. Kind of like the whole idea of low hanging fruit. But that's just my opinion. I don't really want to put any gospel of truth to that. I normally like to cite things that are sourced out. So it's the only reason I'm citing this because... Again, we're not going to be able to really understand it and get it, but just know that the commentary from Rebbe Nachman is bringing down that Memtet is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it says that Moshe understood that if this angel would accompany the Jews, they would further be exposed to evil and might succumb to sin again. They would be further exposed. There we go. They would be further exposed to evil and might succumb to sin again. Although... The Jews had already seen and experienced the awe of the revelation and manifestation of God. Anything that might come between them and God, even a messenger of God, could distance them and even lead them to idolatry. Even the messenger of Hashem, if he comes between us and Hashem, could lead us to idolatry. That's what that just said. This is the, the common... Uh, notion that people have about why it's not kosher to believe in Yeshua and call yourself Jewish. But it's just like, but but Mashiach is is the manifestation of Hashem. So like they're one. So it's just kind of like you're telling us not to follow the Torah because 
the Torah is like between us and Hashem, but it's not. So Yeshua is between us and Hashem, but he's not. But anyway, um, therefore, Moshe said to God, if your presence does not go along, Shemot 33, 15, since he wanted God's divine presence or providence to remain manifest for the Jews, Moshe's intention was that God would stay with them and Moshe would enter the Holy Land under God's divine providence. And that way, the Jewish people would remain in the land forever. So Yeshua says, it's better for me that I leave, right? So then uh, the next thing says, Joshua never removed from the tent, Shemot 33, 11. This miraculous tent where the luminaries would come and get to know when is it my time to shine and all that kind of stuff. And okay, it's, it's dark outside. Okay, stars, you leave the tent now and go shine in the night sky. Come back. Yeah, that literally is commentary on the tent of Moshe. This is just like so much on that. But anyway, um, this is the place where Yehoshua would never left. So when it says he never left from the tent, it says, didn't Yehoshua leave the tent to eat, sleep, or attend to his needs? This praise shows that Yehoshua had complete faith in Moshe the Zadok. One who has faith or one who has this faith is cognizant of the Zadok in everything he does. He remains steadfastly with the Zadok, whatever he does. Lakute Halakot 7, page 282. And of course, that's the only thing there he's going to say on that uh, anyway. So, uh, yeah, something about being steadfast and immovable in Mashiach. Shaul wrote about that. Um, shattering the tablets. Do we want to talk about that? No, of course not. We don't want to talk about that. Uh, oh, by the way, one thing I really wanted to say was there's a lot of blaming the mixed multitude going on. Where have we seen blaming someone for our sin? Oh, yeah. You mean Bereshit chapter three when Adam blamed Hava? So we are repeating that again with our commentaries when we're saying the mixed multitude caused us to make the golden calf. It's just like the mixed multitude did not cause us to worship the golden calf any more than Hava caused Adam to eat the fruit. Adam didn't have to eat the fruit. And we didn't have to make the golden calf. So there's that. Broken tablets. It says um, he shattered them. Moshe shattered them. The tablets represent the heart. As in the verse, inscribe them upon the tablets of your heart. Mishle, Proverbs 3.2. Just as the tablets were broken, so might a person's heart be broken in the sense of being forgetful. And because memory is associated with sight, forgetfulness is associated with the sight that is compromised, i.e. with an evil eye, which generally refers to jealousy. Therefore, in order to keep his heart from growing forgetful of God, a person must not allow himself to become jealous of others. Lakute Maharon 1, 54.4. He shattered them. More commentary on that. That verse, by the way, is... Shemot 32, 19. It says, um, had the first tablets not been broken, the Torah would not have been forgotten by the Jews. Eruvim 54a. You know, God's original plan was to give us a Torah and allow it to never be forgotten. This is why when Mashiach comes, he's supposed to teach us Torah that we won't forget. And isn't it interesting that everything Mashiach taught us, miraculously, we haven't forgotten it. Even without reading it, we know he said things like love your neighbors, you love yourself. The Torah hangs on the two greatest commandments. 
Uh, you've heard it say, you know, love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. Sure, we keep going, right? <laughs> it's just like, oh, okay, that's cool. Sapphire tablet, Mashiach, huh? Okay. A ravine 54A, huh? Okay. So then it says, since the first set of tablets were broken, however, we must guard and rectify our memories. This is alluded to in the word Tammuz, which is the month when the tablets were broken, by the way. Again, 17th of Tammuz was supposed to be like a Rosh Hashanah, like on another epic level, because like three weeks of awesomeness were supposed to happen. But anyway, <clears throat> which is an acronym. Tammuz is an acronym for the phrase Zikru. Torah Moshe. Zikru Moshe. Remember the Torah of Moshe. Malachi 3, 22. Tammuz, the month in which the destruction of the temple began, calls upon us to remember the Torah so the temple will be rebuilt. Lakute Maharon 1, 2, 17. Um, Hashem tells Moshe, I will make you a great nation. It is also in chapter 32. Uh, it says that uh, Moshe, who was completely humble, never thought of himself. When God offered to make him into a great nation, Moshe worked to gain forgiveness for the Jews so that they would not be destroyed. Lakute Maharon 2, 7, uh, section 2. And with that being said, Shonaf Pincus and Parsha Tedzave 5779 brought down that this was to the level of Noah and the flood. So Hashem saying, I'm going to wipe out all the Jews and start over with you. It's just like Hashem telling Noah, I'm going to wipe out the world and start over with you. Moshe was like, that did not work out last time. And it's not going to work out this time. And instead of you bringing a flood and like killing the whole world, which would be killing the Jews, which the world is sustained in the merit of the Jews, because we are observant of the Torah. And so, uh, Kehod Humash br literally brings this down in Hasidic Insights that how do we know the will of Hashem is important? Because the Jewish nation is in existence. We exist, basically. Because Jews exist, the will of God is important. And the Torah gives merit and sustenance to the world and to all creation. And those who uphold the Torah attach themselves to that merit. Okay. Anyway. Um... So, yeah, so Moshe was completely like, I will not be Noah. I'm going to be like Abraham. I want the world to be saved. So you have to forgive him. And Hashem was like, OK, well, we'll do that. But it's going to take some work, i.e. it's going to take Teshuvah. And uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, Moshe pleaded. It says, Vayichal. He pleaded, which is similar to Chala, which is activated. Through proper prayer, one activates the merits of the patriarchs, which protect the Jews and enhance the sanctity of the Holy Land. Lukute Maharon 1, 55, 8. Uh, and I know you're thinking, oh yeah, like Chala, right? And it's actually Chet Lamet Hey, which you could pretty much say that is the same spelling as Chala, but I think Chala has two Lamets. Why am I guessing? Why don't I just do it right now? Swerving all over the place. Might as well do this. Because I love hollow. Hebrew spelling of it. Of course. Yeah. Hollow. So Moshe gave Hashem hollow. And Hashem was like, okay, I forgive the Jews. Yeah, that's how you spell hollow. That was right. So the word Moshe pleaded and hollow are the same. Okay. That was just really. So now when we're eating our hollow, we're like, 
pleading and asking Hashem for forgiveness over partaking of the flesh and blood of Mashiach Yeshua. Man, Taurus freedom. That's Lakute Maharon one ten seven vote six two. Tablets for the work of God. Pesachim eighty seven B. When the Jews made the golden calf, the letters ascended, just like Mashiach's spirit departed from him. Um, yeah, because other than that, he wasn't going to die. So there's all that. Uh, breaking the tablets, Moshe made sure that people would have to search for godliness. And if they search, they will find it. Yeshua said, if you search for me, you'll find me. Uh, the sages say, the tablets that you shattered, Shemot 34.1. Sages read Asher Shibarta that you shattered as read it as Yishar Kokaha Shibarta. You should have more strength now that you shattered them. Shabbat 87a, i.e., the death of Mashiach Yeshua made atonement for us, but his resurrection empowers us to live and walk in newness of life. So we have more strength. And then it says, were not the tablets broken, the Torah would never be forgotten. By breaking the tablets, Moshe showed that a person who commits a grave error should not think that all is lost. Instead, he should forget his wrongful past and begin anew. Lakute Halakot 5, 230, or 116a. Okay, uh, one last drop here before I close up Rebbe Nachman this week. So he called out in Hashem's name, right? So it's just remote 34. Uh, God is talking about himself. God is praying to himself right here. Yes, God is praying to himself in Shemot 34, 5. So please know when Yeshua was praying in the garden and talking to himself, that's totally fine. That's what Hashem did. Said he called out in God's name. The essence of forgiveness is rooted in God's name. When one repents before God, he elevates God's name and arouses the name to effect forgiveness. Lakute Halakot 3, page 111, or page 11a. Uh, just know pretty much from that point on in Rebbe Nachman, he goes into grace. Taurus grace. All right. Bringing out Shomer Blue on Mishle 3-2. Um, little drop about truth and mercy uh, being around your neck. And the length of days and all that kind of stuff. We talked about all that earlier. Um, says, for they add to you length of days and years of life and shalom. My Torah, my commandments will do this for you. That's Rashi. It says, for they will defend you and mention your merits. That's Mazudot. A length of days refers to length of life. Years of life refers to years of health and good. That's Rabbi Yonah. Now it says, chesed and amet, truth and mercy needs to bind your neck like a lanyard, like a necklace. Okay, notice that Yochanan 1 um, specifically, where is that little book? There we are. Specifically, Yochanan 1.14 says that um, full of chesed and amet, when the word was made flesh, right? So overflow this, what I'm about to say to you, and that's Mashiach. It says, hold on to them. Do not let them forsake you, Mazudo. So don't forsake Messiah because he will forsake you in front of Hashem. That won't be good because he's always in front of Hashem. Okay, then it says, King Shlomo now starts to spell out the spiritual prescription to serve Hashem, beginning with kindness, chesed and amet. Chesed includes noble character. Amet includes the intellect. 
Chesed is the desire to help others, whether monetarily or physically, exerting oneself on their behalf to avoid hurting them. And then uh, Chesed prescribes such traits as cruelty, stinginess, hatred, and jealousy. Uh, basically, when it talks about that uh, you desire to help others monetarily or physically, you exert yourself on their behalf, and you avoid hurting them because... If you hurt them, this is such traits like cruelty, stinginess, hatred, jealousy. Uh, truth, it says, admit, entails not praising what is wrong and not denigrating what is good, not flattering dishonesty, dishonestly and rejoicing in the honor of the righteous and the downfall of the wicked. So it is not praising what is wrong. It is not denigrating what is good. It is not flattering dishonestly. It is not rejoicing in the honor of the righteous or Slika. It is rejoicing in the honor of the righteous and the downfall of the wicked. That's interesting because we're not supposed to gloat over our enemies, but let's keep reading and see what happens. It includes the pursuit of truth, judging others honestly, avoiding favoritism and admitting that one has erred. One should be wary not to be led astray emotionally by false ideas and premises because a man is so beloved by Hashem. Truth is so loved by Hashem. A person should strive for it even beyond the literal demands of the law. So go beyond the letter of the law. For instance, truth dictates that one honor not only written and verbal commitments, but those that he had only thought about in his heart. Rabbi Yonah. And because it's the Vilna Gaon, it says he defines chesed and amet differently in interpersonal relationships. Any goodness done voluntarily, great or small, is chesed. Emet, which is truth, is what someone does to repay the chesed. Emet, truth, must be commensurate with the kindness. A small gesture of gratitude for a great favor is inadequate. And last but not least, Sukkah 49b. In man's conduct towards God, the concepts of chesed and amet apply as well. In conduct towards God, the concepts of chesed apply. Okay. To dedicate oneself to Torah study is amet because one is commanded to do so. To teach others is chesed. So Yeshua is not only Torah, but he studied and taught it. So he's chesed and amet. There's that. Uh, quick note on 12, because there's this whole thing about the world is built on 12 pillars. And that's in Hagiga, uh, Hagiga 12b. Okay, so I don't have time to get into that. But just know that uh, it says everything within existence in the lower realm reflects a higher spiritual concept. There are 12 permutations of Hashem's Yod and Hey, Vav and Hey. So the Tetragrammaton. The divine name, it permutates 12 different ways and uh, it represents the pathways of divine influence in the universe. Uh, oh, I forgot to tell you, I'm reading from the Jewish book of the wisdom and the numbers. And they literally say there are 24 Zerufim, which is the way to say permutations of the divine name as it is pronounced in this world. Adonai, but due to the double letter Hey and the four letter divine name Hashem, this limits the number of permutations to 12. 
Yeah, because there could have been more if it wasn't the same letter in there. Anyway, so 12 Pathways to God, it says that every one of Yaakov's 12 sons merited to be included in the composition of the Jewish nation. Parallel to the 12 permutations of God's four-letter name, each tribe chartered its unique, distinctive pathway. This is why Yeshua had 12 Talmudim. And why, when there was one lost, they got another one. Because they were missing a pillar. Uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, I'm going to finish up with talking about Hava over here. Because I brought up in the TTB class, the Torah to Bazora class, that there's truth that's everywhere. And it's like, which truth do you want? Do you want Hashem's truth or somebody else's truth that's based on Hashem's truth? And that's pretty much what it boils down to because many religions are chalked with truth, but it's not Torah truth. Because anytime you remove truth from its foundation, you're uh, you're in trouble. So, that being said, I'm going to bring out the Or HaKaim because I was talking about the serpent, the Nachash, actually taught Hava some amazing truth. And she was upset because... How can the serpent actually teach me things that are truth that Hashem never even told me about? And that's not cool. And it's just kind of like, well, if you just follow Hashem, you'll actually be led into the fullness of life. But you have to search it out, you have to seek it out. It's the glory of Hashem to conceal a thing, but it's the glory of kings and queens, by the way, to search it out. So don't get upset if Hashem hasn't like just unloaded the treasure trove on you without you putting forth any effort. Because if he did that, he would be treating you like the serpent treated Adam and Hava. All right. So anyway, this is Or HaKaim uh, 3.6, uh, page 180, 180, 189. Okay. I covered it up with the tab. I could have moved my tab down, but I don't know why I did that. But anyway, so it says... Hashem had anticipated both of these eventualities. He's anticipating everything because he knows the end from the beginning and had therefore conveyed the prohibition to Adam in such a way as to avoid any misunderstanding. What are we talking about? He said, don't eat from the tree, right? So there's a way that he put it so that it could be avoided. But because we didn't really listen to how he put it and what he how he like how he put it and and the way that he put it we got ourselves all tangled up which is why we have to have the written and the oral tour to put it all together um yeah so anyway it says the master hashem master of legions knows what is in the darkness okay i.e he knows about the yetzahara because it says the yetzahara is embodied here by the serpent associated with darkness and it darkens people's eyes okay he knows what's in the darkness i.e he knew that the serpent was lurking in the shadows he knew that the serpent was lurking in the yetzahara and that he would ultimately come to hava with such arguments as those recorded in the passage that hava would be swayed by his words why is it today that we need to hear the voice of messiah because we should be swayed by his words not by anybody else's but anyway, it says, as a result of her two errors mentioned above. Is this why we have two Mashiachs? I don't know. Just a random question. It says, 
And therefore, with the speech of the righteous one, which is like choice silver. Come on, man. Because remember, silver is the same gematria as Yosef. So with choice silver, come on, get you some, right? Literally, uh, Bachar, chosen. Chesiv, Bachar, Lashon, Zadik. Silver, choice, language, Zadik. Yeah, okay. So anyway, so with the speech of the righteous one, which is like choice silver, he negated both of these notions in uh, verse 217, which says, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat from it. Okay, so if you really are filled with the spirit of Hashem and are attaching yourself to Hashem, that covers the whole gamut of what the serpent dissected, broke down. He separated the letter and the spirit and began to give all of his little discourses and took us away from the original because Hashem has it all right there. But if you're not filled with his spirit and walking in the Torah, when you have a separation of those two things, that's where you get caught up in the Yetzirah. That's why we have other festivals to replace the festivals that are in the Torah today by people who claim to believe in the same God and to desire the same Messiah. But anyway, I digress. It says we see that Hashem was particular to say, but of the tree to indicate that even the tree itself was prohibited. And likewise, by referring to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he informed Adam that the tree provided wisdom and that it possessed the ability to impart knowledge of good and evil. And with this understanding, he was issuing a decree not to even eat of the tree itself. Having experienced, <clears throat> having expressed this prohibition in this clear fashion, the inciting serpent would have no means of inciting Adam and Hava to sin, for they would make no mistakes about Hashem's intent. So what happened? It says, however, the man did not convey the words to the woman precisely. And this can be inferred by her words recorded in verse three, as we pointed out earlier, i.e. from that which she said to the serpent that the prohibition applied to the fruit Oh, my goodness. He said, don't touch the fruit. And so the serpent does the whole thing where he pushes her up against the tree. And then she's like, oh, yeah. Da, 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 da. Anyway, so she didn't die and all that kind of stuff after that. So now <clears throat> goes on to say, OK, the reason Adam did not tell Hava that the tree provided knowledge of good and evil is that he did not wish to notify her. It had this quality of providing wisdom to those who ate of it so as to not increase the desire for it in her heart. You know, some things, if you don't know about it, you don't have any desires for it. And so there's that. But anyway, it says, but he did not know that enemy, the serpent, was with them in the room, i.e. he was nearby. Wow. The Yetzirah is always seeking like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Adam also did not bother to mention the prohibition of the tree itself, for he too thought that the tree itself had no taste, and that it was therefore not necessary to command her against eating it. For although, it, although Hashem had explicitly said to him, but of the tree though. So anyway, he meant literally. Adam thought the matter was not meant to be taken literally. It's just like, oh, when are we going to put aside our own knowledge? When we do 
put in our own knowledge. That's what trips us up. Says Hashem's intent was only for what was on the tree, namely the fruit. That's what Adam thought. That is because Adam had already deduced based on his experience. How long was he alive? For like maybe not even more than three hours. But anyway, it says uh, based on his experience with other trees in the garden, that wood had no taste. Other trees don't have taste. So why would this one? Of course, it can't have any taste. It's just like, uh, but you don't know about the tree of knowledge, though. Okay, you have no knowledge of knowledge. (laughs) Wow. According to and accordingly, he reasoned that the prohibition would not apply. So that's going all on. So for this reason, Hadam, Hava, and the earth were all punished. They all erred. Each was responsible in some way for the sin of eating for the tree. Hava's error was the greatest of them all, for ultimately she ate of the fruit, knowing full well that she was transgressing Hashem's word. Although Adam too ate from the fruit, or Hakim's opinion in verse 12 below is that he was unaware that the fruit of Hava served him was from the forbidden tree. Nevertheless, since Hava's transgression came about as a result of his error in conveying the prohibition, he too was punished. Hava was, uh, or Adam was responsible for Hava's error. So there you go. Can't blame her. And we can't blame the heir of Rav uh, for the golden calf. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, there's way more here and, and lots of other cool things about letters of Torah and light and our clothing and stuff. But what can we say to wrap it all up is that uh, the chesed and the met of Hashem is what we should bind around us. This is the yoke of Mashiach that we should take upon ourselves to find our rest and seek him out and search him because we will find him. And what do we know? What do we know? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Vekaye olam natabetokeinu Baruch atah Adonai Noten ha Torah Amen